The concept of function in graphic design today is unquestioned. Postmodern concepts aside, of course, the typography and image should guide the viewer, provide information, and communicate a message. It should be clear and legible, free of distractions and irrelevant elements. This was a revolutionary idea when it was established at the Bauhaus School in Germany. Using the same modernist philosophy applied to architecture, product design, and furniture, graphic design broke from the decorative forms of the 19th century. Now graphic design and typography's role was to relay information as efficiently as possible. In order to get a complete picture of the development of Bauhaus, we'll need to briefly review the influences of other German wartime and post-war movements, specifically Dada and Expressionism. The Bauhaus was the flashpoint of the beginning of what we consider modern design today. Its revolutionary concepts radically changed how we design, what we consider to be valuable aesthetically, and what the public expects from all the design fields. By 1919, the world had been fighting a war on many fronts for years. The economy faced its worst recession in decades. In Germany, unemployment, hyperinflation, and political chaos marked the years following their defeat in the war. Work was scarce, the mark was nearly worthless, and uprisings and riots reflected pervasive political and social unrest. Yet it was then that graphic design emerged as part of a modern industrial society in the cities of Central Northern Europe. All creative fields, and the way we do business, changed with radical new technologies. Radical developments in printing technology in the early 20th century had allowed for the incorporation of text with images derived from photographs into a single printing matrix, a change that expanded the compositional possibilities for mass-produced printed materials and gave birth to the field of graphic design as its own practice. The growth of graphic design as a beautifying and stylistic force was evidenced not just on posters in the streets, but in letterheads, advertising leaflets, catalogs for industrial components, and trade fairs. What was called commercial art survived the war in advertising, notably in the work of outstanding poster artists like Holvein Bernhardt. But in the 1920s, visual communication as a discipline was shaped by the avant-garde, which, in Germany, took the form of the Bauhaus School. Before we move on to the rise, realization, and recession of Bauhaus and the legacy it left, it's necessary to step back a moment and provide some context on the artistic movements among which it developed. Germany, situated between two powerful avant-garde movements, was open to the aesthetics, philosophy, and altruistic intent of its neighbor's influence. To the east was suprematism and constructivism in Soviet Russia. To the west, the universal harmony of the Dutch de Stijl artists, described in our last lecture. In Italy, if you recall, Filippo Marinetti's futurist movement turned its focus from politics to design in the years between 1914 and 1918, followed closely by a second wave in the 20s and 30s led by Fortunato de Pero. 
Dada's anti-logic, anti-art philosophy spread from Hugo Ball's Cabaret Voltaire in Switzerland to France and Germany, while Art Deco synthesized the most optimistic facets of Cubism, Futurism, and Art Nouveau to appeal to both French and English consumers. At the end of the war, the most prominent artistic movements in Germany were Expressionism, which was an outgrowth of the Vienna Secession, and Dada. Posters, books, and journals produced by Expressionist artists were marked by aggressive, emotionally charged illustrations, whose violent contrasts were matched by freely drawn hand lettering or heavy typefaces that were originally designed for advertising. While German Expressionism was a stylistic milestone in filmmaking, graphic design in this period was marked by overemphasis in these sort of heavy dramatic techniques, which left just a few remarkable film posters, but no real lasting mark on graphic design. Expressionism thrived in the years leading up to the World War I, but began to wane as more rationalist and technology-centered ideologies flourished. The rise of National Socialism effectively ended the movement in Germany, where it was deemed degenerate by the Nazi regime. It was the poets and artists of the Dada movement, anti-establishment, anti-military, anti-art, with their futurist disdain for tradition who continued the revolution in the use of words and images. If you recall from our lecture on futurism and Dada, the Dada is particularly employed photomontage, the assembly of ready-made images, and they mixed all kinds of letter forms and printer's ornaments in typographic compositions. John Hartfield, a prominent Dadaist, and his brother Wieland Herzfeld produced for a German Dada publication called Neue Jugend, or New Youth. The content they produced removed any doubt that the brothers were committed to an anti-war agenda. Wieland Erzfeld had to be clever even to get permission to publish Neue Jugend. The war was still on, paper was a precious commodity, and the German army was in charge of issuing permits for new publications. Wieland, always the sharp business person, instead of applying for a new permit directly, instead acquired the printing rights of an already established school magazine titled Neue Jugend. Through ownership of those publishing rights, he simply adopted the name and shifted the content of that school magazine into a radical Berlin data paper promoting uh, German anti-war sentiment. The publication was not only completely out of line with strict military guidelines of what could be published in Germany at the time, but designed with the revolutionary data typography and raw aesthetic that no doubt caused an uproar. It was a slap in the face to German military command, and only the first in a string of sarcastic, witty Berlin data papers. This page depicts a typical layout featuring an ad for a portfolio of lithographs by fellow Dadaist George Gross. Here, Hartfield combined old engraved blocks found at the printer with slogans and sans-serif type. The need to lock the type into the printing press demanded rectangular units, and so imposed a strict vertical horizontal arrangement. 
To Hartfield, this was really no obstacle. He simply poured wet plaster around the angled type and blocks to hold them in position for printing. The Dadaist propaganda skills, first exercised in self-promotion, were diverted to publicizing design itself as part of a social revolution in which freedom would be achieved through increased mechanization. In typography, they followed a disciplined version of constructivism in later years. It was limited to a narrow range of typefaces and paper sizes, and each design had to have a structure derived from its verbal content, not arranged according to established precedent. For images, the hand-drawn was replaced by the machine-made illustration, the photograph, or a collage of photographs. The designer worked at a drawing board like an architect, producing a layout that provided instructions. In this way, decisions were then taken out of the hands of the printer and made in the studio remote from the industrial process. These developments, from expressionism toward functionalism and from handcraft towards designing for machine production, can be traced in the changing graphic design at the Bauhaus, the famous school of arts and crafts. The Bauhaus, a German word meaning literally house of building, emerged from political, social, and technological changes in the 19th century. If you recall, before World I, the arts and crafts movement, headed by William Morris, attempted to introduce the idea of quality, craft, and handmade items. After the devastation of the war, these ideas had much less relevance in most of the modern movements. But in 1919, Walter Gropius was looking for a way to include this philosophy of beautiful art and quality handcraft into the education of artists and designers. So he merged the Weimar Institute of Fine Arts and the Weimar School of Arts and Crafts to establish the Bauhaus. Its primary objective and driving philosophy was the attainment of Gesamtkunstwerk, which is the total work of art, bringing together all forms of art and design. The idea of a school encompassing the totality of all artistic media, including fine art, industrial design, graphic design, product design, typography, interior design and architecture, was a radical departure from the traditional education of artists and designers. This would be a place where designers could learn the importance of craft and the handmade, while adding technology and the machine-made to their mission. Throughout today's lecture, we'll touch on a few of the most prominent figures who helped shape the legacy of the Bauhaus and the new typography. Laszlo Maholinage, Herbert Beyer, and Jan Schikold. How they responded and the challenges that the students and faculty faced revolutionized modern design in a defining step forward for the discipline, first in Weimar in 1919 to 1924, and then later in Dessau and Berlin. In 1919, Gropius published a manifesto in which he denounced the separation of architecture, painting, and sculpting from construction and craft. He asserted that the artist must also be a master craftsman and that art and technology had to be unified in order to effectively solve problems of visual design. 
The title page of the manifesto featured a woodcut by Lionel Feininger, which depicted this shining cathedral under three stars. And those three stars symbolize the concepts of the Bauhaus as a crystal symbol of new faith. Gropius believed that only an artistically trained designer could create ideas brilliant enough to justify mass production. In the early days of the Bauhaus, members training in stained glass, woodworking, and metallurgy were organized into apprentices, journeymen, and masters, a medieval system that was overseen by an artist and a craftsman working together to integrate both the design with the execution. New students were introduced to the Bauhaus ideology in the Vorlehr or Vorkurs, a six-month-long preliminary course with three main objectives. To help students release their creative potential, to facilitate understanding of the physical nature of materials, and to teach the universal underlying principles governing harmonious visual art. The course evolved over the years from a focus on medievalism, expressionism, and handicraft toward more emphasis on rationalism and machine-made designs, as designers sought to develop an objective design language without the intrusions of personal taste or expression. This shift reflected a transition in the school's focus overall, which is best demonstrated by the change in its slogan from a unity of art and handicraft to art and technology, a new unity. The emphasis on the synthesis of artistry and production hadn't changed, but the method of production, and therefore the method and means of design, was catching up to the machine age. The first seal for the Bauhaus was attributed to Johann Auerbach and resembled a mason's mark in its spread eagle figure that was carrying over its head a pyramid. By 1924, as the Bauhaus aesthetic developed, this was replaced by a geometricized profile of a head, which was adapted from a much earlier design by Oscar Schlemmer, one of the staff. It could be simply reproduced from printer's rules, strips of wood or metal that printed as solid lines. In 1925, the Bauhaus moved from Weimar to Dessau, necessitated by increasing disagreement with Weimar's government officials. Gropius designed a new building to house the school, and Herbert Bayer created the rounded sans-serif letterforms that make up its distinctive sign. This building contained many features that later became the iconography of modernist architecture, including steel frame construction, a glass curtain wall, and an asymmetrical floor plan. The space was organized by logic rather than aesthetics in order to distribute studio, classroom, and administrative space for maximum efficiency. The school formed the Bauhaus Corporation to sell working prototypes to industry, where they went on to then influence 20th century architecture, furniture and interior design, product design, and typography. In 1926, the school rebranded itself Hochschule für Gestaltung, which is School for Design, and began publishing the influential Bauhaus magazine to spread its principles and ideas about art theory and design application. It was during this period 
the Bauhaus school developed its distinctive identity and philosophy into a system of clear formal principles that could be intelligently applied to solve problems of design. Maximum negative space and clear hierarchy assisted the viewer. Sans serif typefaces, such as Futura, based entirely on geometric forms, rejected the degenerate typefaces of the pre-World War I political structure. Asymmetry, rather than symmetrical layouts, created a dynamic rather than static solution. Mathematical proportions were adopted. Again, this was a reaction to the seemingly arbitrary choices made simply with intu intuition rather than logic. The golden rectangle was favored due to its mathematical perfection and ultimate harmony. Typographic proportions also followed a strict mathematical structure. There was no such thing as a 17.65 typeface. A layout would use mathematically compatible sizes such as 8-point, 16-point, and 32-point. Typography was considered to be, above all, an empirical means of communication and artistic expression, but visual clarity was stressed above all. At its cores, these three principles directed the work. Number one, typography is shaped by function. Number two, the aim of typography is communication. It must appear in the simplest and strongest form to convey the information. And number three, typography must serve social needs with ordered content organization, and a relationship to the of the typography to the content. As time passed, typography became increasingly connected to the Bauhaus corporate identity and advertising. The typography workshop was tasked with the design of all promotional materials. The use of simple sans-serif typefaces and photography rather than illustration as the key graphic elements set the tone for what we call modern today. In 1925, Gropius appointed Herbert Beyer as the director of printing and advertising. Beyer, an alumni, had studied for four years at the Bauhaus under masters Vasily Kandinsky, Paul Klee, and Laszlo Moholy-Nagy. With typography, Beyer used the simplest possible geometric elements. His goal was the standardization of the communication processes overall and the development of a uniform typographic presence for the Bauhaus. From 1925 to 1930, Bayer designed a geometric sans-serif universal typeface, a typeface which combined upper and lowercase letter forms. He recommended that to achieve a more simplified way of writing, designers embrace the exclusion of capitals, saying that restricting themselves to lowercase letters made them easier to read and therefore easier to learn. He questioned the efficiency and clarity of using two different symbols, a capital and a lowercase, that both produce the same sound when just one would achieve the same effect. This also served to reinforce the Bauhaus concept of an egalitarian society with equality for all in the way that it illustrated the equality of the letters. All typefaces, sizes, geometric forms, and colors were embraced in this new typography, as it was eventually referred to by Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, 
whose detailed instructions were laid out and demonstrated in the design of his book, Staatlich Bauhaus, or State of the Bauhaus, in Weimar, 1919-1923. Hungarian painter, photographer, and designer Laszlo Weiss was raised mainly by his uncle, Gustav Nagy, a well-off lawyer who ensured his education. His early years were spent in a town in Hungary called Mahol, which he added to his uncle's surname. Initially interested in writing and poetry, Maholi Naj began sketching and painting during World War I to document his experiences in the Hungarian army. In the years immediately following his discharge, he further developed his skills in night classes at a private school run by fauve artist Robert Bereni. By 1920, his work had shifted from realism to abstraction, no doubt as a result of the influence of L. Lisitsky and Theo van Diesburg, whom he encountered during his years in Germany. By 1920, his work had shifted from realism to abstraction, no doubt as a result of the influence of L. Lisitsky and Theo van Diesburg, whom he encountered during his years in Germany. His palette became more restrained as he embraced rhythmic proportions, strong vertical, horizontal, and diagonal lines, and strictly geometric forms. In 1922, he met Walter Gropius while exhibiting his work at Der Sturm and was invited to teach at the Bauhaus the following year. Maholi Naj's impact on the Bauhaus school, and by extension, typography and design, was instantaneous, broad, and enduring. His work during this time demonstrates his profound understanding of cubism and constructionism, depicted here in his typographic collage, 1922, and the logo he designed for the Bauhaus press both of which feature precise geometric shapes and proportions executed mainly in black and red, with the notable exception of Lisitsky's trademark red triangle in the counter of the A. Red triangles and polygons also intersect and invade one another in this title page from the avant-garde magazine Broom, much as in Lisitsky's famous Fight the Whites with the Red Wedge poster. In 1923, the originator of the all-important Bauhaus preliminary course, Johann Itten, was deemed too mystical to be in line with the school's new objectives. Walter Gropius chose Maholi Naj to replace him. Maholi Naj immediately retooled the curriculum to focus on objective communication and rational design. Students were taught constructivist principles and techniques in understanding, designing for, and working with new materials and tools. Later that year, he oversaw the design of publicity materials for an exhibition demanded by the state government to justify the financial support the Bauhaus had enjoyed since 1919. With Gropius, he took the opportunity to further the goal of realizing the machine aesthetic in providing high-quality designs for modern society. This poster by student Joost Schmidt combines strong cubist, constructivist, and dish steel elements in its geometric forms and restrictive color palette. 
The profile of a face in the Bauhaus logo is captured in a perfect circle, puncturing the upper end of the overall elliptical shape of the composition. Asymmetrical hairline serifs give the rectangular letter forms in the word Bauhaus a sense of speed and direction as they travel along the dynamic diagonal main axis. Harmony and unity are evoked by the use of mathematical precision in proportion, shape, and arrangement. Schmidt's functionalist design reflected Maholi Naj's instruction and influence, and he was eventually asked to join the faculty as well in 1928. Maholi Naj was also responsible for the typography and graphic design of all but three installments of the Bauhaus Booker or Bauhaus Books series, issued through the Bauhaus Press. Maholi Naj played a leading role in launching the series in 1924. His pioneering designs radically transformed thinking around book publishing, which he had previously criticized for its monotonous gray linearity. By contrast, Maholi Naj pioneered stylistically unified branding, with elements of the book from typography to layout to cover designs and binding, contributing to the overall creative uh, harmony and effect. Key to this approach was Maholi Naj's emphasis upon the typographical process, which he described in 1925 as based on the effectiveness of visual relationships. Every age has its own visual forms and accordingly its own typography, and the latter, being a visual form, has to take account of the complex psychophysical effects upon our organ of vision, the eye. This image shows the cover of his own book, the eighth volume in the Bauhaus Booker series. It's considered a landmark work showcasing Maholi Naj's pioneering achievements across all three media. The front cover is a photographic study featuring various geometric shapes outlined in white with boldly ruled sans serif letters in red and white. To the left and the right, diagonal planes of light materialize, suggesting the photographic trace of an object in the style of Maholi Naj's photograms. The design then continues onto the back of the book as the left diagonal reveals itself to be a strip of film. For the artist, the book cover represented a unique design opportunity, a kind of double-sided picture plane on which the spirit of the book's themes and contents could be materialized, thus making the cover a crucial creative element of the work in spirit of the Gesamtkunstwerk, or total work of art. At the center of his artistic ideology was the belief that the soul of art and design was in the concept, not so much in the execution, and that the two could be separate while still working together for the goal of communication and expression. Maholi Naj enthusiastically advocated photography over painting, claiming the world could be seen through a viewfinder in a way the naked human eye couldn't perceive. He urged artists to renounce traditional tools and perceptions and learn how to see in this new way by embracing technology. His approach to photography was passionately dedicated, but playful in execution. Extreme angles and viewpoints, variations on scale and perspective, 
special darkroom effects, which he combined then with bold contrasting typography in what he called the typophoto. In the typophoto, type is transformed into a component of visual communication rather than being used solely for its linguistic or literal content. Earlier in this semester, we looked at visual poetry and letter-based collage pioneered by artists such as the Futurists since the 1910s, and graphically adventurous use of type in the new advertising culture of the 20s, but never had lettering and photography been combined in this way. In this poster from 1923 or 24, a motor car races along a curved road constructed from the word pneumatic, which was a reference to a new type of air pressurized tire. We can still perceive past influences in this work in the Marinetti-esque speeding motor car on one hand, and then the explicit commercial function on the other. But the materials, composition, and execution were unique to the designer. Due to the use of vanishing point perspective, the letters grow larger as if the car were racing towards the viewer, the front P intersecting with a white curve that surges upward through the pictorial plane and creating a dynamic sense of movement. Maholi Naj saw pneumatic as a key example of the genre of type of photo, which expressed in his words, the new tempo of the new visual literature. In hindsight, we can see how his type of photos preempt the visually adventurous use of language made by both subsequent commercial designers and by later avant-garde art and poetry movements. Maholi Naj's passion for photographic arts not only reflected his belief in the power of technology to change the world, but also inspired some of his most groundbreaking work throughout his career. He referred to his photo montages as photoplastics and filled them with satirical symbolism, as in this composition of pelicans experiencing the foundations or the essential world through a risque, at the time, leg show, all viewed from above by a monkey clinging to a pole that forms the diagonal axis of the composition. He also experimented with a new technique called the photogram. Photograms were a type of photograph created without the use of a camera by exposing photosensitive paper to light in controlled conditions with objects placed over the canvas or the paper to leave white patches unaltered by the darkening effects of the ray on the page. So in essence, the light that was impressed onto the photosensitive paper um, surrounded whatever white objects were placed on it that blocked the light, and then took that shape. The technique had been pioneered by Henry Fox Talbot in the early to mid-19th century, but Mahoney Naj's photograms represent a more concerted, considered use of the medium, backed up not by a Dadaist desire to break down medium boundaries, but by a very real belief in the life and art-hancing possibilities of photography. To him, the photogram was the ultimate expression of rational objectivity, surpassing even painting and photography in its ability to diminish representational art to its most abstract and essential forms. 
This famous early photogram from 1926 shows the reverse silhouette of the artist's hand intersected by a long rectangular grid of white lines and overlaid with the shape of a paintbrush across which a further ghostly set of fingers is embossed. Maholinage used images of hands in a number of his photograms. They take on a quality which is at the same time personal and anonymous. The fact that his left thumb was shattered by shrapnel during his service in the war grants a sense of almost defiance to the motif of creative power. Maholinage was engrossed with the life and form-giving effects of light throughout his career, and in his photograms, light is the very essential means of visual composition, the medium of plastic expression, as he put it. As the art historian Leah Dickerman notes, however, the photogram also represents the trace of physical contact, thus having a strongly tactile quality also, and slyly suggesting that the artist's touch could be as significant to the new medium of photography as it was for painting. And to Maholinage, the photogram was the perfect teaching tool because it demonstrated the medium's complete tonal range and revealed photography's essence to be its sensitivity to light. This image, dedicated to George Barford, another instructor at the school, may possibly have been a collaborative effort in the darkroom or a teaching example for the classroom. Throughout his career, he continued to return to the photogram as an enduring medium of expression. At the School of Design in Chicago, which Maholinage founded in 1939, courses in the light laboratory were a core element of the program with many students creating photograms in the style of their teacher. In 1928, Maholinage left the Bauhaus and returned to Berlin in more commercial artistic pursuits, including advertising design, typography, and stage design. Maholinage always sought out new materials and methods in the steadfast belief that the assimilation of art, technology, and education could be an essential tool for the dissemination of information. His body of work exemplifies his commitment to the Gestamtkunstwerk, or the total work, which he sought throughout his lifetime. Herbert Bayer was born in Austria in 1900 and apprenticed under the artist George Schmidhammer before moving on to study architecture at the Darmstadt Artists' Colony, an influence that would impact his graphic design for the rest of his career. It was at Darmstadt he first encountered Gropius's Bauhaus Manifesto. Bayer enrolled in Johannes Itten's Vorlehr preliminary course in 1921, then studied mural painting from 1922 to 1924 under Vasily Kandinsky. His interests quickly blossomed and his talent became obvious, especially to his instructors Kandinsky and Laszlo Maholinage. In 1923, he was asked to join the faculty. Bayer became one of the Bauhaus's most influential students, teachers, and proponents, advocating the integration of all arts throughout his career. With his extensive range and output in exhibition design, advertising, painting, typography, book design, and more, Bayer fits the classic definition of a creative polymath. As a student of Maholinage, 
Bayer incorporated photography as a machine-produced form, integrating photographic collage and typography as a powerful communication tool. As a teacher of typography and graphic design, he and his students were responsible for many enduring innovations, although the influence of constructionism is evident in the functionalism and clarity that's distinctive to the typographic design of this period of the Bauhaus. In addition to creating the universal typeface, Bayer experimented with flush-left, ragged-right typesetting, aligning paragraphs of text along the left side without forcing the text into justification. While justified columns of type create crisp, sharp rectangles and blocks, the squaring of the left and right sides of the column often creates awkward spacing or crowding and forms the illusion of what we refer to as rivers and lakes. He used extreme contrasts of type size and weight to establish a visual hierarchy that emphasized words and letters based on an objective analysis of the relative importance of each one. He organized arrangements according to an invisible grid with a wide range of visual punctuation and a system of sizing and treating type which unified, divided, or ordered groups of elements according to their importance. In the Distille tradition, he favored the use of simple basic elements rendered in black and one other bright pure color, arranging compositions with strong vertical, horizontal, and diagonal lines. Bayer's commitment to functional communication extended even to stationary and brand design. In his promotional work for industry, such as this postcard and leaflet for the Fagus factory, visual punctuation is used less to appeal to the eye than to direct it. Bayer's designs for letterheads are also straightforwardly functional. If you look, they have printed guides for folding at about a third of the way down so that the typed address would appear correctly in the window of the envelope. All were in standardized A sizes, printed in red and black on white paper, later sort of morphing towards more of a subdued color palette, which you can see in the Cologne letterhead at the right. This poster for Kandinsky's 60th birthday exhibition in 1926 is a distinct example of the style of Bayer's Bauhaus period. His process is visible in the product, beginning with an objective analysis of the information, ordering of the hierarchical structure, and then arrangement on an implied grid with careful attention to the alignment and balance. Design principles of scale, contrast, proximity, texture, direction, position, rhythm, unity, and harmony all work together to draw the eye to the focal point, the word Kandinsky, and lead it around the page. The entire composition is then tilted on a diagonal axis, elevating it to a more dynamic, dramatic design. One of the greatest functions of design is to assist in wayfinding or navigation, whether it's helping someone find a page in a book or a room in a movie theater. In the Bauhaus sample catalog, red circles signal each item's code for ordering, demonstrating Bayer's prescient understanding of an ability to organize information according to a set system.
His philosophy of functionality and clarity set a standard for the organization of all kinds of information through the use of color, visual punctuation, and placement, other visible signifiers that would um, help viewers reach for recognition rather than recall, to be able to recognize a system of identification rather than having to look and find pieces of information on each page. As Bayer's style matured, he pushed the boundaries of the type of photo technique, as in this cover for Bauhaus magazine in 1928. Bayer composed the entire design in front of a camera rather than at a drafting table. True to the machine aesthetic, his constructivist foundations and architectural training, the image is a dimensional composition of engineer's tools and solid shapes arranged to emphasize geometric abstraction, a design eerily reminiscent of his 1923 postcard for the first Bauhaus exhibition five years earlier. The shapes and shadows intersect and overlap against a backdrop of an architectural journal. The title of the magazine is cleverly embedded in the photograph, using the masthead of the newspaper on which the objects are placed rather than being set in type over the image. Bayer left the Bauhaus that same year for Berlin, where he briefly art-directed the German edition of Vogue magazine before setting up his own studio with other clients in the offices of the advertising agency Dorland. His early work there shared the dynamism of his Bauhaus experiments, particularly in the striking juxtaposition of typography and imagery in projects like his poster for the 1930 Verkbund exhibition in Paris, for which he also designed an installation and a catalog. Byers' functional, systematic approach to organizational hierarchy and wayfinding were expressed in his shiny, efficient little catalog, something of an oddity for such a small, temporary show. Through the transparent plastic cover, its embossed title set in Universal could be seen an aerial perspective of the building, complete with a photo-montaged crowd of visitors. The position of the rooms and their place inside the catalog was related through a thumb index on the right. The dimensional complexity of the layered cover and embossed lettering is emblematic of the contents of the catalog, which shifts between two and three dimensions throughout. The tabs are reminiscent of the index L. Lisitsky designed for the Tale of Two Squares book, and indicative of Bayer's approach to the utility of type in the book's construction. One room of the exhibition was arranged with a model of the Dassau Bauhaus buildings on the floor to give the visitor a view from above, illustrated in the catalog with a diagram key. Photographs were hung at optimum viewing angles in accordance with a theoretical diagram which Bayer prepared showing the mechanics of the eye. In this way, the catalog and the exhibit itself function as a single unit spanning space and time in an intricate visual conversation. In 1936, he designed a brochure for the Deutschland Ostelung, an exhibition for tourists during the 1936 Olympic Games. It was a project that would haunt Bayer for the rest of his life. The brochure, which celebrated life in the Third Reich and the authority of Hitler, 
was included in the Nazi propaganda exhibition, Degenerate Art. He then fled Germany for the United States, settling eventually in Aspen, Colorado, where he continued to pursue architecture, branding, and design. Bayer's philosophy of typography and design as a functional means of organization and communication continued to flourish throughout his career in America. Unlike many of his colleagues who had studied fine art or architecture, Jan Schickold trained as a calligrapher and typesetter in Leipzig, a major center of publishing. After his training and his early work in the trade, he became dissatisfied with the prevailing German arts and crafts tradition and was drawn to the developments in avant-garde circles, in particular the constructivist style from Soviet Russia and the Netherlands. Although it's unclear exactly when he first encountered constructivist work, it was likely to have been through the pages of the radical journals that championed the latest artistic and graphic experiments. Like many others during this interwar period, Schickold believed that design should emulate the dynamism and movement of modern life, which was being dramatically transformed by the machine, and held to the idea that design was a force for social change as well as a medium of aesthetic innovation. Design should be efficient and affordable, fully integrated into all aspects and at all levels of society. Taking his lead from currents in Soviet Russia and at the Weimar Bauhaus, Schickold codified the Bauhaus movement with accessible guidelines in what is considered by many to be the most important single document of the modern movement, his landmark book, Die Neue Typography, which literally means the new typography, published in 1928. Rejecting traditional arrangement of type in symmetrical columns, Schickold organized the printed page or poster as a blank field in which blocks of type and illustration, frequently photo montage, could be arranged in harmonious, strikingly asymmetrical compositions. This functional, systematically arranged brochure demonstrated and advocated for some simple basic rules he believed should govern typography. In it, he stated that typography in all formats, including advertising, should be shaped by its function. It should aim to communicate clearly and quickly and should be organized not just in its content, but in the context in which it was presented. He also stressed the importance of the photograph, of sans-serif type, and of white space. He acknowledged the potential of the diagonal or vertical type, called for the adoption of standardized paper sizes, and rejected all organic elements in favor of sparing use of circles, squares, and lines. At a moment when manifestos proclaiming the death of the old and heralding of a brave new age proliferated, Chicold's book stood out for its clarity and utility. His aim for typography was to focus on clarity first, only then developing the beauty of the form from its primary function. His immense body of work and daring approach set a new standard for graphic design. 
By the mid-1920s, many designers were still composing with realistic imagery, traditional lettering, and dramatic effects. And even Plakatstil was beginning to kind of blend into the landscape as a dated style. Avant-garde designers began to compose their book covers, advertisements, and posters like abstract paintings, arranging text and imagery in a manner that liberated design from the traditional constraints of symmetry. Schicold pushed this revolution even further. Some of his most memorable works are the movie posters that he produced for Phoebus Palace Cinema in Munich. The company gave the designer considerable freedom, but he often had to work very quickly as there was frequently very little time between the announcement of the film and the first screening. This poster for the 1927 film Die Hose, which means the trousers, is clearly indebted to the lessons of constructivism he had with its adherence to strong diagonals and simple geometry, which balances the arrangement of image and text, and in its use of a single color, draws the eye quickly to the film's title and the name of the theater. In his film poster designs, Schicold repeatedly structured his composition around the motif of the conical beam of light that propelled the moving image to the screen. This evocation of cinematic projection is heightened in his design for this poster from the 1927 film Die Frau ohne Namen, The Woman Without a Name, in which several photographs appear increasing size in a descending diagonal from the upper right corner, culminating in a charging steam engine that seems ready to burst out of the two-dimensional frame. In 1933, after the Nazis' rise to power, Schicold, who was known as a communist sympathizer, was arrested. Released after four weeks in prison, he was able to leave the country, moving first to Switzerland and then later to England. One of his last works presents a medium that was already undergoing a revolution with the introduction of the Leica camera and a high-speed film. She called in his contemporaries recognized the potential of the so-called new photography to reveal an objective beauty and clarity in modern life. To many Bauhaus masters, photography was not only the most efficient way of depicting the visible world, it offered great potential for graphic communication, combining text and illustration in ways that presented a new type of narrative. The poster, advertising a photography exhibition, presents a woman's three-quarter profile in the photographic negative. Her eyes form eerily bright spotlights shining out of a dark complexion that extends into her hair with these flame-like tendrils. The image is set behind a narrow, bold sans-serif title. The lettering provides a self-conscious counterpoint to the colorless image with a bright, horizontal series of gradients. By the end of the decade, the designer was no longer confident about the aesthetic ideals he had promoted, and while in Switzerland, he began to return to more conventional forms of graphic design, employing historic typefaces and more symmetrical layouts. This return to tradition is found in the designs he produced and oversaw when he was at Penguin Books in London from 1947. 
While the dynamism of the interwar period is clearly absent in his later works, an interest in clarity, utility, and affordable design remain ever-present, as does his enduring legacy to modern design. When Walter Gropius left the Bauhaus in 1928 to focus on his own architectural practice, the effort to separate politics from design also departed. Gropius's successor, Hannes Meyer, criticized the Bauhaus's previous work as formalistic and required that all aesthetic considerations should be excluded. He shifted the school to a social focus on creating tools that were designed to meet the immediate needs of the people and were produced only if appropriate for everyday life. He forced the resignations of popular professors like Herbert Beyer, Marcel Breuer, and others. Meyer then shifted the politics of the school even further to the left than it had been under Gropius. So in 1930, the mayor of Dessau fired Meyer and hired architect Mies van der Rohe as the new director. Two years after the Nazis rose to power in the 1930 municipal elections in Dessau, they closed the school. Van der Rohe attempted to continue the college as a private institution in Berlin, but the move did nothing to placate the Nazi party. Suffering from severe financial difficulties, on July 20th, 1933, the faculty decided to close the Bauhaus for good. Van der Rohe, who was expelled from Germany along with many other professors, students, and alumni, migrated to the United States, reinventing modernism from an American point of view. Although its influence on design was seismic and is still felt today, the Bauhaus as a school had a relatively short existence. The radical nature of the work, its non-conformist appearance, the behavior of the masters and the students, and the constantly changing political scene in Germany led to its very brief lifespan. If we were to oversimplify, Bauhaus could probably best be summarized as the spiritual union of art and production, as it sought to elevate the products of design and through them humanity to a spiritual and artistic utopia. You can think of it not just as the unity of form and function, but as an ideal synthesis of artistic vision with its physical realization in every single step of the design, from letter to paragraph to page to ultimate publication and distribution. Yet one common goal that connects these many ideologies is the elevation of society through the creation of a universal objective visual language as the holy grail that defined so many artistic revolutions, it's a testament to the enduring role of design in clear, concise communication. This concludes our examination of the Bauhaus and the new typography in Germany, and of interwar design movements in Europe as a whole. In the next lecture, we'll look at the American interpretation of modernism in design in the years before and during the disruption and devastation of the Second World War. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at mgridley.ut.edu or you can text me through WhatsApp at 813-436-3323.